from a computer, PowerPoint Advance slide, enhanced audio. This is an augmented reality pastor. This is, uh, this is cutting edge stuff. Let's take a moment to pray. God, it's really good to be here. Um, really encouraging to hear new voices singing different songs, uh, voices upraised to you, reports like uh, the Garden God, the ministry that's happening in and through this church. It's, it's really awesome. Um, I pray that you'd use this time and this message to speak to all of us, to prepare us for what is to come, to strengthen us where we need strengthening, to encourage where we are listless and maybe even hopeless, that you would touch us by your spirit through your word in a powerful way this morning. We come before you and just ask that any distractions that are on our hearts, that are in our minds, that you would just bring peace to those so that we can focus on you and that you can do a work in and through us. Amen. Okay, well, I'm really excited to share as part of this little mini-series that Jason and I came up with about how to move into Lent with intention and purpose. Uh, Lent is this traditional 40 days before Good Friday and Easter that Christians for millennium, um, maybe some would argue as soon as there's some evidence in the early church fathers that it's maybe, the, although it wasn't called Lent, a 40-day preparation or a set time of preparation occurs within one, likely two generations of the, um, the, the apostles and their passing. So early second century. Um, at our church, we've been moving through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, kind of looking at the major theological themes and messages, and 40 days comes up first in the flood story where it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and then that 40 days gets repeated through a few really key moments in the Bible's redemptive history. And then, of course, it kind of culminates with Jesus entering into the wilderness for 40 days for a time of prayer and fasting. And so 40 in the Bible is this massively symbolic number that kind of denotes a time of testing and preparation. So it's very, very significant. It's a time when God takes us, meets us where we are, but moves us and does a work in us in order to prepare us to lead us to a new place. Traditionally, Lent has been a time where Christians all over the world have um, entered into or kind of doubled down on core disciplines like prayer, confession, fasting, giving to the poor, in order to focus themselves on Christ and his goodness and his work in their lives. Um, I don't know how many people here, how many people here would say generally you're either fairly familiar with Lent or Lent has been a part of your life at some point, like you're pretty consistently observing Lent? Okay, yeah, so that, yeah, probably maybe 10, 15%. That's probably about the same um, at the Nelson site. Most people, if they have an association with Lent, even culturally, people around us kind of understand Lent to be the time where, oh, that's the time where you give something up. You don't have chocolate. Maybe if you're incredibly bold, you take like a social media fast. But it's kind of the time where, culturally speaking, it's, 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 um, 
it seems to be untethered for most people from Good Friday and Easter. And most people in our culture might just think, yeah, I guess it's a time where you sort of voluntarily enter into some kind of deprivation in order to cultivate misery at a personal level. I don't know, right? Now, I hope that if you are familiar with Lent, that you'd realize that is not the spirit of Lent. That's not the point. The point is not to just self-inflict another layer of suffering and hardship upon ourselves. It really is about doing the things we need to do so that we can move into uh, the season before we get to Good Friday and Easter with intention and purpose. And the reason why that's really significant is because if you picture your own calendar on your wall in your mind's eye, you, I guarantee you, you're, you're going to have kind of dates that are highlighted in some way. It could be a circle around it, it could be a different um, color notification, it could be a sticker on it, but there are events in our lives that we want to make sure we're prepared for. Right? We don't just roll over week over week, day over day, and then Saturday evening at 5 o'clock, you look to your calendar, you get a reminder on your phone saying, hey, you've got that first date tonight with that beautiful young lady. Right? You're not like, oh. Right? There are certain things in our calendar, big holidays, maybe family get-togethers, maybe it's a weekend sports tournament, maybe it's an anniversary date or, again, a first date. There are things that we put on the calendar, but because they're invested with so much opportunity and so much meaning, we work backwards from them. And whether we do it totally consciously or not, what we're doing is saying, hey, if I've got that soccer tournament and I need to be physiologically and mentally peaking on that Saturday, what do I need to do a month before, six weeks before, three months before, so that we can move into that tournament with, our full, with full preparedness, right? This is an anniversary celebration. If it's a 50th anniversary celebration, there's a lot of preparation that goes into that because there's an opportunity to celebrate something there that just doesn't come along all the time. Lent is to prepare ourselves, heart, soul, mind, and strength, holistically, so that we don't just roll into Good Friday, and then roll into Easter, and then the two services happen really quickly, and then we kind of roll into the next week, and we recall it. It's like, oh yeah, like Good Friday, that was good, and Easter, yeah, that was, that was good. Like we sang some new songs, turned the bright lights up a little bit more, like that was nice. But we feel like we've missed something, because we've kind of rushed through it. There hasn't been a preparedness. There was an opportunity to take advantage of something, and maybe we feel like we missed it. And certainly, for myself personally, both before I was a pastor and after, I have experienced Good Fridays and Easter's like that, where because of stage of life, because of business, busyness, because of things that are going on, I can just get to the Sunday and then wake up on Monday and be like, oh, wow, yeah, it's Good Friday. I knew it was coming, but like, it's like this week. And I don't feel ready, and I don't feel prepared. And it's a really unsettling, thin feeling to move through this really sacred, powerful time, looking at the two of the three most important events in human history and just not, not allowing it to really settle in your heart because you've been distracted with many good things. So if you've never settled into a, a Lenten rhythm or some type of preparation 
moving towards Good Friday and Easter, I want to share with you at least two things that you can do this morning to help with that. Now, when we're preparing for Lent, as we're growing as a Christian, broadly speaking, there's two things you need. You need a good balance of discipline and devotion. Devotion is the will to obey. It's the love for God that isn't just sentimentalism. It's not just warm, fuzzy feelings, but it's, it's a sincere, deep passion to please and honor God. And then we need discipline or disciplines or spiritual disciplines. We need habits and practices that help us keep moving forward even when that devotion isn't there, when we're just not feeling it, when honestly our passion for God maybe is waned. It's not that we're uh, anti-God, we're not resisting God, but they're just, the fire doesn't seem particularly stoked. And disciplines can help us along that path and keep us, whether it's good habits around prayer and reading your Bible, continuing to show up to church. These are disciplines that Christians do um, that sometimes don't flow out of devotion. They flow out of, in a good sense, duty. These are things that I need to do, but that God can also use that dis- those disciplines to nurture devotion. But I want to talk about devotion specifically today. I want to talk about what it looks like for us to nurture devotion leading towards Good Friday and Easter. How do we, as Christians, nurture or cultivate real, sincere, heart-transforming devotion to Jesus? Again, not just mere sentimentalism. I'm not just talking about emotionally trying to rile yourself up. But how do we nurture a posture of the heart that says, I really love God and I'm excited to want to honor Him. I'm excited to want to go into my Mondays and my Wednesdays and my Friday, all of life, and celebrate Him and enjoy Him. I am enjoying following Jesus. I'm not just doing the right things and hitting all the boxes, but there is a, there's an energy, there's a passion that undergirds it. And how do I nurture devotion to Jesus if I'm in or coming out of a season in my life where I've been really busy or distracted or hurting or maybe just honestly apathetic? Maybe there's people here this morning who are like, I'm not, I want to be devoted to God. I just feel like I've just been in a long, dry desert spell for, for quite a while. And I don't know how to get whatever I had back. Maybe there's a particular time in your life you think of, maybe it wasn't that long ago, where there was that fairly consistent devotional heart posture before God. How do I get that back? Is there anything I can do to get it back? Or do I just keep, keep on keeping on and hoping God does something? Well, I want to share with you this morning two ways that I think we can take responsibility to um, participate with God, to cooperate with God, to allow God access to our hearts in maybe a different way than we normally would. So how do we keep our hearts devoted to God? So the first thing I would do is, and I've tried to get better at this myself because it's very easy for me to skip over this step, and that is to forget not his benefits. 
That's a really important part of stoking the fires of devotion in your own life towards Jesus. Forget not his benefits. Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And notice what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, praise the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself in the third person, right? He's, there's, there's a rallying cry that he's telling himself, right? It's like, I get up, I roll out of bed, I'm feeling kind of blasé, kind of meh in the morning. You know, it's like, okay, Jeff Strong, time to wake up. Like, Jeff, praise, praise the Lord. Like, this is the day the Lord has made, right? There's this rallying cry. And one of the things that we're called to do is to forget not his benefits, which is a gracious reminder and maybe a relief to some of us to realize, yeah, we have to work at not forgetting because it's super easy to forget. The presumption of the psalmist is that you're going to forget. God's going to do things in your life and you're going to be like, that's amazing. Thank you, God. I'll never forget this. This is awesome. Fast forward a month, a year, a decade, and we just forget. This is a command. It's a command of Scripture. Forget not his benefits. We're so prone to forget. We're so prone to get caught up. And, and may, or maybe, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a future-focused person. So when God has done stuff in my past, what I can tend to do is be looking forward to what he's going to do. And that's not a bad thing, but it can cause me to forget what he has done and to sit with those things and to give thanks for those things. What can also happen sometimes is God does a work in our life. God blesses us. And God's blessing that we didn't have before, we now have, and that kind of becomes the new normal. And we were super thankful for it at first because we didn't have it. We didn't have that friendship, that church, that family, that job, and now we have it. And now it's kind of become normalized, and now it's like, yeah, I just have these things. But we forget that that was a benefit that God gave us. God's mercy and blessing has just become the new normal, and we've kind of grown accustomed to it. And we forget that what we experience in life and even our new normal is the result of God's amazing grace in our life. And that realization should deepen devotion. So this is why the last few years I've tried to practice some form of note-taking or journaling or just reflection and going back into the memory vault and saying, what is something that God has done in my life that was a huge benefit to me and to offer thanks. Right? Do I remember what it was like to be in my early 20s and to be praying and hoping that one day I'd be married and have a family? Do I remember what it, would, what it was like when I didn't have the position that I have now, didn't have that strong sense of calling? And when I go back and put myself in that state, and hear myself praying and then saying, look where God has brought me. Like, that is amazing. 
And if you can enter into that and even just give thanks for one thing that God has done in your life over Lent, for the remainder of the days and next year, for 40 days, just what are 40 things that you can testify that God has done in your life? That will nurture devotion because you will see with new eyes the good things that God has done. Not, that it's just, not just that he's forgiven you of all your sins, but all the different ways that he's redeemed your life from the pit, all the healing that he's brought into your life, how he's crowned you with love and compassion in ways little and large. And that will renew you. Now, the second thing that I have found very helpful, but I'm very much a novice in, is a kind of scripture reading slash prayer that uh, some, has, some have called Ignatian prayer, and that's just named uh, off of a 16th century uh, Christian leader named Ignatius Loyola. And his kind of deal was that he really encouraged people at a time where there was a real emphasis on the kind of the academic, intellectual um, engagement with Scripture at the level of reason. He really invited people to make sure that that was countered with um, a really um, receptive, heart kind of centered, and um, I mean heart in the broad way there, heart kind of uh, intimate connection with God through the stories of Scripture. He said it's important for people to understand that the Bible isn't just a book of deep, powerful truths, but that the living God wants to personally connect with each of us through the Word in the context of prayer. And so he developed different ways of praying or engaging the Scripture, which kind of blurred the lines between studying the Bible and praying kind of at the same time. And although he didn't always, I don't know if he always used this word, but we would say it's kind of an imaginative practice where we use the scriptures and allow God to speak to us through the scriptures and our imagination. Um, St. Ignatius was very, very comfortable with the imagination. He said the imagination can be used for evil and it can be redeemed, just like human reason can be used for evil and it can be redeemed. And if we allow God to shape and use our imaginations, he can cultivate deep devotion from within us. And so he said, he was trying to teach people how to use their imaginations and not just applied reason in their engagement with Scripture. And so one of the traditions that have kind of spiraled out from his tradition, um, of his emphasis, is this practice of engaging Scripture in a way that is imaginative and slightly creative. So what I thought I would do this morning is lead us in an Ignatian prayer, which is a little bit challenging to do for like a large group because it really is designed to be a bit more of a personal one-on-one -on -one engagement with God. But this will at least give you a template that you could bring into your everyday life for the rest of Lent. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be moving through the story of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. It's found in Luke 19, but I don't want you to turn there if you have a Bible. I'm going to be reading the story to you. If you were doing this on your own, you would have the scripture in front of you. But what I'm going to invite you to do is as we read through the story, I'm going to give you certain prompts. 
I'm going to be telling you to do certain things. And those are going to be things that you're going to be imagining or praying silently to God um, for. So this is a story that might be known to many of you, but what we're going to do is we're going to kind of place ourselves in the story and watch how this way of engaging Scripture is very, very powerful. It might give us a new window through which to understand Jesus' love for us, which can transform our hearts and our imaginations and our minds, and then we go into uh, the rest of Lent with um, renewed energy and renewed focus. So in verse 1 we read that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So in your mind's eye, you can close your eyes if you want. Um, I don't know if that's dangerous to ask you to do on a daylight saving Sunday. Um, You can close your eyes. But in your mind's eye, I want you to picture the scene. Now if you've never been to um, the Holy Land and you have a hard time picturing what it would be like, it's just, it's totally okay to just picture standing along Baker Street and Jesus and the disciples are coming into Nelson. Uh, And that might even help Ignatius said it might even help to, to create some of these cultural parallels and kind of place this story in our context. So put yourself in the crowd. There's uh, people lining the streets on both sides. You are there. At the far end of Baker Street coming down is Jesus. And you have been expecting this. You are excited to finally see him. Maybe you're going to be able to get close enough to touch him or to shake his hand. Verse 2, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So I want you to put yourself in the place of Zacchaeus. So I want you to imagine being small in stature. Jesus is in the distance. He's coming towards you. The crowd is buzzing. You're hearing people around you. Oh, I see him, I see him. There he is, there he is. Verse 3, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So I want you to imagine what it would be like to have a physical impediment of height that if there's two or three rows of people ahead of you, and even as you shift up and down the street where you are, you can't actually get a good look. Imagine struggling to see over the crowd as everybody clamors to get a good view of Jesus. So Zacchaeus in the story has a physical impediment. It was an obstacle to connecting to Jesus. Um, But maybe for you it's a different impediment. What would come between you and Jesus if he were coming here into Nelson? What would be the thing that would cause you interference in coming to him? So to continue to see yourself in your mind's eye, to begin to have the anxiety around is he going to pass through and go on and are you going to miss him? So you run ahead, you climb a sycamore fig tree in order to see Jesus since Jesus was coming in your direction. Now in your mind's eye, you're going to look around for a place to get higher and maybe to the right or to the left of you there's a ladder set up beside a storefront So I want you in your mind's eye to climb up on that ladder. As Jesus comes down Baker Street, you're climbing up on that ladder. You want to see him. You're not going to let these crowds stop you. 
Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now imagine your mind's eye, you're up on that ladder and you're looking. You're not even, you haven't even said anything. You haven't waved at Jesus. You haven't called out his name. But as he gets kind of parallel to you on the street, he stops and he turns to you. And I want you to imagine what that would be like, that the rest of the crowd is going to turn and look at you too because they're wanting to see what Jesus is looking at. So they look at you and now all eyes are on you. And Jesus calls your name and says, I want you to come down. I got to stay at your house today. I want to have dinner at your place. And so in your mind's eye, picture yourself coming down and you move towards Jesus and the crowd parts and there's an embrace of some kind. And Jesus is smiling and he's excited. He's genuinely excited to see you. And you can see already he's looking forward to connecting with you and breaking bread with you. Verse 7, all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And you heard those voices too. When you were coming down the ladder, when all eyes were on you and when Jesus invited you forward, there was an audible silence that kind of swept over the crowd. It got really awkwardly silent. And as you moved in between them to connect with Jesus, you heard those whispers. Why would Jesus invite, insert your own name there. Why is Jesus calling to Jeff? Jeff's a sinner. And sinner here is a loaded term. It doesn't just mean someone who makes mistakes or someone who sins. It means someone whose pattern of life is one of um, sinful rebellion against God. But it's also tinged with condemnation. So when you're going through the crowds and there's this pall of silence with these whispers emanating, you're hearing people because these people know, for whatever reason, they know your darkest sin, they know your greatest failure, and you're hearing things, not, just, not like sinner, that's not the way people are going to talk in Nelson or in Balfour. They're going to say things like, that's a garbage human being. That's a low life. Why would Jesus invite such a loser, such a has-been, such a nobody, to eat with him? As a tax collector, Zacchaeus is reviled for being a traitor to his people and a cheat. But these people revile you for a different reason. They see your heart. They see your sin. You are known to them. And the shame washes over you. And yet when you get to Jesus, there's that embrace. There's that smile. He sees something in you that no one else sees. And the way he engages with you, the way he, he touches you, the way he um, looks at you, makes it very clear there's no condemnation here. Verse 8, 
Zacchaeus brings Jesus to his home and he stands up and he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because this man is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. I mean, imagine what that would be like to have Jesus in your home eating with you. What would you talk about with him? What would you share? What burdens would you invite him to bear that you haven't shared with anybody else? And what conviction arises as you sit and eat with Jesus in those awkward silences? He's a listener that you feel completely at ease sharing with. And you know that you're exposed to him at the deepest level. And yet, instead of recoiling and armoring up and shutting down and trying to hide, you feel perfectly safe to just bear your heart and soul to him. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And you know, you can feel it in your bones. It's not just an idea. You can feel it in your bones that he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Not condemn it, but to seek and to save it. And you know what that means for your situation. Where are you lost? Where do you need Jesus' rescue? Even today? And then close the time of imaginative prayer and reading by saying maybe a prayer like this. God, thank you that you see me that you love me that in your eyes and in your kingdom my past mistakes my sins my lifestyle my failures don't have to define my future don't have to define who I am thank you that even though people around me think I'm unworthy think I'm a low life think I'm not um not good enough that you see past all my inadequacies and you love me. And thank you that you have a plan for me and a new purpose. Help me to respond to you just like Zacchaeus did with an open heart, with a gracious spirit touched by your grace and love saying, God, how can I respond to your goodness in my life? Amen. Now you can do that with any scripture, but it's a a little bit easier and probably more helpful to do it through a gospel story, maybe even a familiar one. Just go through, maybe even just once a week, but maybe several times a week if you have the time and just read over the story a few times and just move through the story prayerfully and saying, God, would you show me a new part of this story? Will you show me? And do you see how it's, do you see how it's different than like studying the passage where we're not so actively trying to extract information, which isn't a bad thing. That's my wheelhouse. I love that. But to cultivate devotion means to often put our hearts in a posture of receiving. And when we take a story from the Gospels of Jesus' 
healing a blind man, cleansing someone of leprosy, and deeply personalize that by putting ourselves in the story and do that prayerfully in the presence of God. My experience has been it is very difficult to walk away from those times not personally touched. And not just for a moment, not in the sense of like, oh, that was like a nice little nugget that I got from my little devotional today. I'll remember that. But it's, a, um, it's an impression in the heart and in the mind that you carry with you. Maybe for a day, maybe for a week, maybe for a month, maybe for the rest of your life. And so for the rest of Lent, I would like to encourage you to forget not the Lord's benefits. Just write down one thing or say, share one thing with your family in your marriage and friendships, small groups. What's one thing that you can point to every day to say, this is how God has been gracious to me. And then engage a few gospel encounters with Jesus this way. Do it slowly, do it imaginatively. Don't worry about having to try and do it perfectly. It's just steeping and setting in the sto- sitting in the story long enough to allow the Spirit to put important impressions upon our heart. And if you do these things, and as you do these things, your devotion to Jesus will increase. Your passionate desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection will increase as a fruit of it. You won't have to try and drum it up. It won't be a willpower spiritual lifting yourself up by your um, bootstraps, it will come naturally as you encounter the living Jesus through his word. Let's pray. God, prepare us for Good Friday and Easter. Whatever that looks like, for Balfour as a church, for the families here, for the marriages, for the individuals, for the friendships. God, I pray that this church would move into and through the rest of the Lenten season with intention and with purpose. That you would even use this brief reflection this morning, this movement through the story of Zacchaeus to bring about a new revelation of who you are, a fresh understanding of your grace in our lives, and that would prompt a response, God. God, we don't want to be Christians who are doing all the right things, we know all the right answers, but our hearts are cold or our hearts, even worse, are far from you. We want to be devoted to you. Teach us the things that can help us get there and stay there. We love you, God. Increase the depth of our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.